Good morning, everyone. I'm going to wait a, just a few minutes for everyone's logging in. I see the numbers going up fairly quickly. Um, I knew this would be a, a very popular one after the holiday break. Um, I think we're up to 129. Very good. Uh, so again, good morning, everyone. Hopefully, everyone is is safe uh, in the in the middle of this uh, beautiful winter storm. It's actually very pretty throughout the state, but please drive safely. It's very very slippery this morning. Uh, we're doing this remotely thanks to our wonderful team of experts that puts this together very quickly and it gives us the capacity to do it from from, from our home and your home uh, this morning uh, we have a lot of information for you and we have uh, uh, john alone without another presenter and then john and i will be happy to answer as many questions as as we can for you uh, in the midst of this new uh, what I'm going to call it the new pandemic with uh, with Omicron, which is a little different than what we had seen before. It, certainly affecting the pediatric population is certainly affecting you as providers. It's been very, very difficult. Uh, I know it because I've spoken to many of you. So has John and the people here at Connecticut Children's. Uh, for those of you who are on the front lines in, uh, in hospital medicine and the emergency department in the PICU, uh, in the uh, outpatient clinics, Hang in there. Uh, this this too shall pass, uh, but I think the next two to four weeks are going to be complicated, tough, uh, and uh, I trust that uh, with all the expertise that you bring, we'll make it through. So without further ado, I'm going to ask John to uh, go ahead and give his presentation, and then we'll have, obviously, as always, uh, questions at the end, and hopefully we'll leave plenty of time for your questions, and I know there are many questions that you have. Uh, John? Uh, thank you, Juan. Uh, I, and I want to make sure that you can see and hear me okay. Yeah, we can, we can. All right, move ahead to the first slide, please. And again, welcome. Happy New Year, everyone. Um, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and it's not a pleasure to be here. I will tell you, uh, I have ambivalent feelings. Here we are in 2022, the third year of the pandemic. And who would have predicted that we'd still be chatting like this in 2022? But it's where we are. And I, actually, I'm going to uh, present you a lot of data today so you have the foundational understanding of a lot of the swirl here right now, as much as I can get in, then we'll open up for questions because there's just so many questions from parents. And I want all of you to have the scientific foundation uh, to understand some of the answers, at least at this point uh, with Omicron. Next, please. So once again, the United States is a mess. Uh, we're leading the world in new cases of COVID, but as you'll see, and as Dr. Salazar mentioned, this is different. Uh, the Northeast is particularly hard hit with numbers of new cases but that's probably not what we need to be looking at anymore. We probably need to be looking at hospitalizations and deaths, and I will show you those data shortly. You'll see that the South, which lagged the Northeast, is now rip-roaring, and um, there's a lot of risk there because it's a very under-immunized population compared to the Northeast, but this is countrywide. Uh, next, please. And you'll see, actually, this is already out of date. It was hard to keep up. It's yesterday. There's, there's more than 500,000 new cases in the United States daily. It's just remarkable. Now, the problem is um, the hospitalizations, which are now over 100,000 nationally. It's very regional. Uh, it is going to be accentuated in under-immunized states shortly. Every one of those governors is going to regret bad-mouthing the vaccines because they keep you out of the hospital with Omicron as well. It is what it is. So watch hospitalizations in the coming weeks. I think the number of cases, this is an undercount. There's just so many people who are going to get it. Most people will ultimately, I think, get Omicron. 
but it's the hospitalizations and deaths that we need to keep watch on. Next. And um, this is American deaths, which are not, it's not great. It's 1,500 people, but you'll notice it's blunted. And that is initial data coming out of the Northeast. But as this sweeps into other states that are under-immunized, I remain concerned that American deaths are going to increase again. Next. And so if you look at the actual increases, they're remarkable. This is way beyond anything you saw with Delta. And it shows you the, this variant Omicron's mutations have greatly enhanced contagiousness. You know, Miami had a 700% increase in cases in literally 14 days. Maryland, 3,000% increase in various counties in Maryland. So this is a way out of control uh, new cases. We are not going to control this. The trick is... Um, to really look at hospitalizations and then deaths. And you'll notice that in general, it's relatively muted. Now, New York had a peak, and I'm not, I don't know whether that's the under-immunized component of New York City or not. I don't have those data. But in general, um, heavily immunized areas, death rates muted. So compared to the last wave. So that's very important. And actually, that's true with hospitalizations. Next slide. So you'll see here, th this is a, an interesting slide. Um, the New York Times looked at CDC data and compared new cases to the rates of hospitalization, 100% being what was saw seen last winter. So if you look at, for example, New York, an enormous increase in cases, but hospitalizations are kind of where they were last winter, even though the number of cases is 300% more. So hospitalizations are lagging the number of new cases. Look at Massachusetts in particular, heavily immunized, and Connecticut. You'll see that we have wild increase in new cases of COVID, mostly from Omicron, and hospitalizations are just hovering below where they were last winter, where you would have expected them to be much, much higher. So if this pans out as it sweeps through heavily immunized states, we may be able to manage this quite well. We'll see how it goes, but this is what we need to be paying attention to, hospitalizations and deaths. Next. And uh, this is not just America. Often, you know, the newspapers focus on what's going on here. This is all over the world. If you look at the EU, England uh, has a very similar log phase increase in uh, cases from Omicron, France, Spain, um, and Germany uh, as well. And most of them uh, I haven't peaked yet. A couple of them are starting. Switzerland looks like it's peaking now. And actually, I've heard London cases are flat and starting to go down. So it looks like this is burning through in four to six weeks in countries, but we'll have to watch this carefully. Certainly in South Africa, it was around six weeks. Next. Now, our vaccinations rate never reached 80% herd immunity in the United States, except in the elderly. And uh, I believe this is reflected in the muted hospitalizations and death rate and that we've protected, people may get sick, they're breakthrough infections, but they tend to stay out of the hospital if they're immunized, unless they're very elderly and then the risk goes up. Uh, but our fully vaccinated is just not where it needs to be. And unfortunately, there's states that are far less than this number on where you, the numbers game will be huge numbers of Omicron and lots of hospitalizations and deaths. Next. Now, what about, I keep saying states with low vaccination rates, if you look at data before Omicron, um, and this is states that are under immunized on the left and the death rate higher up, and states that are heavily immunized on the right, 
the facts and the data show that heavily immunized states have a lower death rate from COVID. I, I mean, these are just the facts. I don't know where, you know, there's a lot of spin out there of just erroneous information, but if you're a heavily immunized state, your death rate from COVID is lower. Those are the facts. This is pre-Omicron. Omicron's virulence, as I'm going to show you, is probably a bit less, and I expect this to hold true. So again, as we talk to people, these are the facts. Show them the graph. If you happen to live in Vermont, you're a lot less likely to die than in, in Wyoming, where people aren't immunized, because you're immunized in Vermont. So uh, you can't get any clearer than this. Next. Now, Omicron in Connecticut um, has fueled a, a really aggressive resurgence. I, this is not accurate. 10,000 cases a day, probably more, because we don't know all the rapid tests people are using. So we're in the midst of an enormous outbreak in Connecticut. Next. And it's not, and it's not flattened yet. Uh, however, Connecticut deaths, although they've increased, look at the difference from the last surge in January where we had less, you know, a similar number of cases, actually a little bit less now. And um, look at the uh, death rate. So we're a couple hundred percent higher than January of last year. And um, the death rates reasonably low still daily. And that represents a heavily immunized and boosted population. The vaccines are working. So again, these are the data as we look through, uh, as I distilled this out uh, this week, pulling this together for you. I want everyone to be able to look people in the eye and just see the facts, the death rate's low because people got immunized and boosted. Next. Now, um, Connecticut hospitalizations, we have to watch really carefully, even if this is lower virulence, which I'm gonna show you some data, and, and immunization is keeping people out of the hospital, there's still a lot of unimmunized people. And the facts are, it's just a numbers game. If 10 times as many people get infected, we are gonna have very busy and filled hospitals and that's starting to happen across the state. The blue arrow shows the increase in hospitalized COVID patients in Connecticut. And positivity, by the way, is now 22%. I'll show you that in a minute. I mean, we have an incredible uh, test positivity rate in Connecticut, so it's everywhere. Um, and there, yesterday, there were 1,676 patients hospitalized in Connecticut, and 67% of them were either not immunized or not fully vaccinated. So if everyone had gotten immunized, the hospitals would be empty. Uh, and so it's just, you, you get very frustrated looking at this, but these are the facts, and, and this is what I think our job is is to present the facts to the public and to our other providers and everyone so that people can understand what's going on. So out of the patients hospitalized yesterday in Connecticut, 67% of them were not fully vaccinated in those beds with COVID. So it's unfortunate, uh, but it's targeting the unimmunized and I'll predict almost every unimmunized person is gonna get Omicron. Next. This is Connecticut. I don't know what's going on in the town up in Litchfield, um, but uh, you know the entire state. Uh, yesterday was 23% test positivity. So out of every test done, 23% of all the tests were positive in Connecticut yesterday for COVID. It's probably much more than that. Um, and so you know we are living with this, but uh, this is not a good place to be, and, and we do need this to settle down. Next, and I have some suggestions about that. Now, what about virulence? So um, what are the actual data? So anecdotally, there's lots of people saying, yeah, hey, we're just not seeing that many people in the ICU or the death rate's low. I showed you the death rates. Uh, you know, what, is this because of immunization? Is it less virulent? And the problem is, for example, in Connecticut, we're saying, well, 
death rates muted, but we have a lot of immunized people. So is it that the virus is less virulent or is it that we just have a heavily immunized population now? So what are the data? And there's some very interesting data from South Africa, which I want to praise their public health um, infrastructure. And uh, they, they got this out very early that there's Omicron. They've been trying to push the data out to help other countries. Again, it's really a role model uh, of what a lot of countries um, could be doing. But let me show you their data next. And uh, here's, uh, there's a couple of different uh, papers uh, and letters to JAMA and other things. This came out of, um, South Africa. And if you look at the table, they're looking at outcomes of patients who were admitted with COVID in the last uh, few waves. And the last wave is Omicron, wave four. And they looked at the death rate of all those admitted people, and they don't have a very good immunization rate. So it's not, I don't think so if people are immunized. And you'll see the death rate in wave four, which is Omicron, thanks for the arrow, is much less than the death rates in the other variants. And it's statistically significant, highly significant. And there's less mechanical ventilation, there's less ICU admissions. So it's very interesting and very good data suggesting that this particular wave is less virulent in the South African population, which is not particularly well immunized. So next. And then um, the characteristics also showed um, if you're admitted the different waves of admissions, um, it's a lower hospitalization rate overall. So if you look at wave one, the number of patients admitted with COVID was 67% of those who showed up. And you know, again, their healthcare infrastructure is probably not as good as, as other countries, but it's not bad. And then in the wave four, only about 40% of those people are getting admitted and it was highly significant. Now you'll also notice it's a younger age group who are getting admitted and, and I think, um, that may be panning out in other countries as well. We're not sure. And does that represent that South Africa was able to immunize their older people? And they've been, they've been trying to do that or, or not. I don't know. But this is what we see, less, in, less admissions and a younger age group being admitted. Next. So that's the South African data. And it's promising that this variant is indeed much more contagious but of a lower virulence category. So we'll have to watch that panning out in the United States, but it's promising data. Now, what does this mean for our treatments? Omicron, I showed you, oh, I guess it was a few weeks ago now, has 32 mutations compared to Delta's four, and, and there are a lot of complicated changes in spike protein. So what is this doing uh, for monoclonal antibodies? In this paper, which just came out a week ago, um, uh, next slide, please. Unfortunately, the monoclonals we have don't work. So let's, let's look at Regeneron. You can see, all I need you to see here is on the left is against a variant that is not Omicron. On the right is 11529, which is Omicron. And the, the downward trend of all the graphs means the antibodies are not binding. So Regeneron and the other antibodies we've been using do not, do not, um, are not able to bind to the spike protein adequately of Omicron and don't, are, are not going to work. These are very distinct data. I, I don't think there's any controversy here. Next. So the old monoclonals don't work. However, we do have some tools still. There's a new monoclonal, Sotrovimab, which most people call Sotro because they can't, nobody wants, I don't know where they come up with these names, 
Um, why not just call it Numab or something, but Sotrovimab is hard to say. So most people say Sotro. This is an IV prep, GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, it's used similarly, in, but it cannot be used for prophylaxis. The EUA is for only COVID positive patients, mildly ill, age 12 and above, with risk, the usual risk factors. Here's the problem. There's 50,000 doses being distributed uh, every week or so by the US government. There's not enough made. Connecticut got 1,000 doses last round, and Connecticut Children's got six of those doses. It's extremely limited supply. We're, we have obviously asked for more, and we've gotten a little bit more. But right at the moment, this is not particularly helpful because we don't have enough. But it does bind to Omicron spike protein and does seem to retain its neutralizing antibody characteristics against Omicron. So that's very promising. There's another one that's new, Evusheld from AstraZeneca, which is IM. It's two monoclonals and two separate shots, and it's not allowed to be used for treatment. So this is only prophylaxis, only in people who haven't been exposed to COVID yet. Now, I don't exactly know why that is. I think that was their data. They presented to the FDA, unfortunately. So you can't have been exposed to COVID. You can't have COVID, but you, if you're severely immunocompromised, transplant patient, or you were unable to get the vaccine because of anaphylaxis or something like that, Evusheld can be used and it will work against Omicron. It's an IM shot. Unfortunately, we also have a very limited supply. I think we had 10 doses yesterday. It's probably less now because we're giving it out. So, But we do have some monoclonal tools uh, with, in very limited supply, but the old ones don't work and we're not using them. We're not using the Regeneron and uh, we are not giving them because Omicron dominates in Connecticut and uh, they're not going to work. Next. Now, um, also, let's talk about boosters. Again, uh, why bother boosting? I'm going to get an infection anyway. You know, the reality is, if you look at a third dose, it gives good neutralizing antibody titers against Omicron. These are data from Israel from a week ago. Um, and they show that with Delta, if you look at C, neutralization in samples from patients who got three doses, and you look at Omicron, the arrow moved. Um, it's not bad. There's still pretty good neutralizing titers after the third dose. But look at A, with two doses and Omicron, you have very little activity. So you've got to get that booster dose. And then you probably will be protected against severe disease. Most likely the data are showing you will be protected against hospitalization and severe disease. But the booster is really important. Here are the data when people say, why get boosted? Two doses with Omicron, very little neutralizing antibody. Third dose, pretty good. Um, it's, it's not bad. So, so again, these are the data that we need to base our conversations with people on, um, whether they're patients, parents, politicians. Um, these are the data. Boosters are really important, and it's one of the reasons the governor of Connecticut is now fo focusing on trying to get that done. It will provide good neutralizing antibody titers against Omicron. Next. Now, there is another vaccine that's been bouncing around. I, I've mentioned it for two years now, but I think it's important. Novavax is recombinant spike protein, and it's the same technology that's being used for hepatitis B a vaccine. It uses insect cells to, to grow it up. And um, I think it will be better accepted as not radical new technology by some people who are very uncomfortable with the mRNA vaccines. And the data are quite good. Now, unfortunately, uh, these data were before Omicron. 
But if you look at the efficacy, it was 90% efficacy to prevent infection compared to placebo, which is the blue arrow and Novavax is the sort of brown orange one. But it's 100% efficacy in preventing severe disease pre-Omicron, which is quite remarkable. So unfortunately, I haven't seen data in the Omicron era from Novavax. I know they're trying to get in front of the FDA or they already are in front of the FDA. It's two doses, five micrograms, 21 days apart. It's standard recombinant technology we've been using for decades. And I think will provide another tool for us with our patients who may be hesitant with the mRNA vaccines. I don't know when this is gonna have an EUA, but I don't think it's gonna be very long. Next. All right, so what's happening, you know, every week I sort of, I look around at the media and, you know, we're in the middle, you see all the graphs, right? We're, we're in the worst outbreak of the pandemic in terms of numbers. Data clearly show that if you're immunized and boosted, you're not gonna end up in the hospital. And the data from the states that are heavily immunized is showing that in Omicron in Connecticut, we're seeing it. A lot of cases, a lot of hospitalizations, but our death rate's low. I've shown you all the facts. Here is um, a, a media report pushing natural immunity to COVID as the best alternative instead of vaccines. Now, I'm going to show you some data on that. So, you know, look, natural immunity is important. It's going to be, play a big hand in getting us to herd immunity. But the problem with natural immunity, of course, is that a lot of people die on the way there. So, you know, it's a balancing act, right? You'd like to not have a lot of people die as some of the population gets to natural immunity. And this was a pretty lethal virus, particularly in the elderly. And maybe it's less, less lethal now. But so there's sort of a lack of understanding. And by the way, natural immunity for respiratory viruses is not particularly great. If you think about a cold, which is a coronavirus, a cousin of COVID, I mean, how many times do you get a cold? Well, every year because your immunity doesn't last. So Immunity to respiratory viruses is never particularly long-lived. Sure, uh, pertussis, for example, if you get natural pertussis, you're protected for life. It's probably better than the vaccine, but that's bacteria. It's a very different pathogenesis. So there's some confusion here about people who are talking about natural immunity as if it works for everything. Well, it doesn't, and particularly for coronaviruses, it's not very good. So let me show you some data. Next. So here are great data looking at plasma neutralization of the Omicron variant by people who are unimmunized and got disease. So I want to show you um, the middle top, A, unvaccinated person. Um, and I want you to look at their titers of neutralizing antibody. They got sick. And then at six months after they were sick, they have no antibody. <laughs> There's no, very little neutralizing antibody to COVID. But then if you give them the vaccine, they get a great response. So when everyone says, oh, I had COVID last year, I don't need to get the vaccine. Well, yeah, you do because you don't have any immunity left. And if you get the vaccine, you're gonna have a great response. And look at Omicron. So these are people who, who probably did not have Omicron. Um, they're tighter over six months is declining. It's not zero, there'll be some, some immunity there. But if you give them the vaccine, they have get really protected. They're going to not get in the hospital. So the point of this is, if you get COVID over a six-month period, your neutralizing antibodies decline precipitously. And if you're immunized, you'll have a huge booster response and be heavily protected. So I think these are great data. Again, share them around where everyone, oh my God, COVID last year, I'm fine. 
it, it goes away. The, the immunity goes away. There's still a little residual. We don't know which of those people might do fine, which won't. But if you get the vaccine after, you're really going to have nice high titers uh, against the virus. Next. Now, what about death rates? This is a really interesting slide for a number of reasons. This is the percent of deaths that are caused by COVID out of total deaths, which is, it's really scary. So if you look at the middle 45 to 64 age group, 17% of all deaths in that age group, the United States are caused by COVID. And that's actually increasing. Remember I showed you in South Africa it was a younger age. Similarly, in the United States, there's a younger group getting COVID and, and the, more, the mortality rate to, compared to total mortality, it's 70% of all deaths in that age group. It's really unbelievable. But if you look at the elderly who are heavily immunized in the United States, the death rate, in other words, if you died at age 65 to 84, what percent were from COVID is really down to 11%. And in the elderly, 85 and above down to 7% of total deaths, it's worked. So I think um, this is, again, critical data to understand how valuable full immunization is. Now, I don't know whether this includes boosters and the data are old because they stop at Thanksgiving and it's not Omicron, but I, I think we can get a lot out of this, that you're going to increase, uh, you're going to really improve um, the status of people immunized and the deaths that are caused by COVID as total deaths is going to go down. But here's the other thing. 17% of all deaths in 45 to 64 are now caused by COVID in the age group. I mean, I just find that stunning. And, and you, people don't seem to have their arms around that. Um, there are relatively young people dying every day. Next. So let me show this to you again, because there's, there's a lot of information. Well, I'm gonna get Omicron anyway. I don't need to get vaccinated. If this, these have held out through Omicron, by the way. So I, they were updated in just, to, if you look at, Unvaccinated, you have a five times chance of getting clinical disease from COVID compared to those who are fully vaccinated. And you have a 13 times chance of dying if you get COVID. That's a log difference. So, I mean, that's pretty easy data for me. So I'll get the shot. I'll have a tenfold less chance of dying if I get COVID. I mean, you just can't get clearer than this. So I, I wanted all this out there because, you know, there's a lot of stuff going out uh, you know, froth, and I want everyone to have the facts. Next. Now, why do children not get as sick as adults? And again, this was a paper that bounced around for a few months and then uh, was re re uh, revised and then got published. It's very interesting. I don't know if this is the answer, but next. What they found is that when they looked at kids, who uh, were infected with SARS-CoV-2 and tried to do a full 360 of their immune response. Their innate immunity, which is on the left, was much, much more robust than adults. And that includes toll-like receptors and interferon gamma made locally in the cells and the lungs and things like much higher levels than adults. And the thought, the hypothesis is that might actually prevent the virus from really taking off. And the innate response in adults was blunted, particularly in elderly, which probably is senescence of the immune system. So that may be part of the, I don't need to go on the rest of the slide, they have lots of other thoughts, but I think focusing on the innate immunity being much higher in small children, that's a possible hypothesis. And we'll see if this pans out. We, it has been 
a real silver lining that most children don't get very ill, but the why of it has been poorly understood. Next. Now, um, the CDC has, I know we're going to have questions in this. I don't have all the answers. I, you know, I don't run the CDC, neither does Dr. Salazar. But I can tell you what we're doing. And this is the current CDC table for healthcare providers. And I kind of wish that the CDC had stayed this, with this for everyone, but it is what it is. And there's a lot of confusion. But what we're doing, if you uh, have SARS-CoV-2 and you're working, you know, you're a provider or MA or a nurse or whatever, um, we're, we do seven days. Um, they have to be asymptomatic and a negative test and they're coming back. And um, Omicron looks like it's clearing much faster. And, and, uh, and so that's what we're doing. If we have a staffing contingency and it's a problem, we'll bring them back in five days. And we talk, we have ways we do that. Um, and to get them to work, they wear an N95, uh, and, and, and sometimes we have to do that, but not usually. If you're um, boosted and you have an exposure, you just come right back to work. We don't worry about it. Uh, we do test around day five to seven. Um, and if you're vaccinated or unvaccinated or 90 days of an infection, um, you can do seven days with a negative test coming back. So we've tried to stay around the seven day point because we know at five days, there's a small percent of people who may still be contagious, but we'll do five days if we have to. And I, I think many of the public health people wish that the CDC had kind of said that, like let's, we're gonna bring 10 days down to seven because almost everyone's negative by then, particularly with Omicron. But if you have to do five days in the contingency, this is what we think you should do. That's not what was done. There's a lot of confusion out there. I can't tell you what the right answer is other than that we chose to reduce risk to our immunized patients and other team members by sticking with seven days, but allowing staffing, if we have a problem, to do five days with an N95 and being very careful, and et cetera. So we can talk about this, but this is what we're working off of at Connecticut Children's. Next. Now, what's out there in the media? I, 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 it's one of my most joyful sessions to go around and look around. This is One American News Network, which used to be fringe, um, but you know has a lot of followers now. And this is a doctor who basically said that by not allowing people to use, still talking about ivermectin um, and pushing vaccines, we're ca uh, causing fear and death. And I'll read the, the headlines as a doctor said, the suppression of treatments and the push for vaccine is to cause fear and death. Now, I have shown you the data. Vaccines are the opposite. They are actually preventing death. The data and the facts are really clear. So this is just disinformation uh, that people are reading. So when you have a patient who comes in freaked out that the vaccine is going to kill them, this is why. Next. I, I don't know what the end game is, why you would publish it. I mean, what's the end game of this? Is uh, More people die. I don't understand. This one this is much more subtle. So Rhode Island went from firing unvaccinated. Oh, you can go back to that, please. Nope. Thank you. Rhode Island went from firing unvaccinated healthcare workers to allowing the COVID positive to work. Now, I think Rhode Island mandated vaccines for healthcare workers, as we did, which is the right thing to do. I've shown you it prevents the ICU admission, death. You're probably going to transmit less. And it was the right thing to do. But now we're in Omicron. It's totally new. And we have staffing problems everywhere. And we are, I showed you the graph, we're being a little more flexible with five days. 
and trying to bring people back when we can. So this is factually correct, but a disinformation to make people think, oh, we don't know what we're doing, the vaccine and this and that. And, and you read this and you're very confused if you're not sophisticated. And one Rhode Island healthcare worker said we had no choice. So this is about choice for vaccination. So again, disinformation. Next. And I no longer buy from iWord Direct. That's the advertiser for that because, you know, I'm not going to do it. Now, this is another used to be friend. So this is what it's, it's relentless. Omicron mandates are about power, not science. I have shown you the science. And I will also say if everybody wore a mask indoors in Connecticut, we could keep the hospitalizations down a little bit, which would be helpful. So, you know, again, disinformation. The truth will win against COVID tyranny. So this is, uh, by the way, we don't have COVID passports. And this is by Ron Paul, who, who is the father of the other Paul. Um, so, I mean, and it's relentless. So for whatever reason, and I still don't fully understand it, there's a relentless disinformation campaign that the vaccines are bad and that any sort of rules to try to get this under control are, are some sort of tyranny. So it is what it is, but everyone needs to know this is what some of our parents are reading. Uh, next. So where are we at? <laughs> Good, bad, the ugly in 2022. Who would have thought, but there is a worldwide Omicron resurgence. It's burning through most countries. It seems to be going fast. Omicron has dramatically increased contagions, but I've shown you data. I think it has lower virulence and that's based on South African data showing lower than expected hospitalizations and deaths in a relatively under immunized population. Connecticut clearly has absolutely uncontrolled community spread right now with more than 20% test positivity. Hospitalizations are rapidly increasing. However, they're at a much lower rate than what happened in the last uh, winter. So if we can settle this down a little bit, we can get through without our hospitals being overwhelmed. More children are hospitalized, I didn't mention this, than in previous resurgence, and that's true at Connecticut Children's as well, but it's, I think it's a numbers game. You have so many more people infected and a very small number of children did get hospitalized, but now we have many more infected so we have more kids in house and some of them are admitted and don't have a primary COVID disease, have something else, but are COVID positive. So the, the Children's Hospital Association in the US is trying to sort out, is this really more COVID admissions or is it just more kids having to be infected with COVID and it's being picked up? And I don't have the answer for that yet. And I'll, I'll be, Dr. Salazar may know more data that's come out the last few days, but right now we don't really know the answer to that. Now, given waning immunity and now Omicron, and I showed you the data with boosters, whether you are infected naturally or whether you had two doses, it's not enough. The booster dose is essential. It boosts you up. It will cover Omicron. The Israeli data show that it's correct. And, and there are other data that show that you can see boosted people are not being in the ICU and are not dying. And so this can be very important. The boosting strategy is critical. The lack of consistent use of common sense public health measures, such as masking indoors, is making it more difficult for us. It's just fact. If everyone wore a mask in every store, we'll probably have less hospitalizations. So I wish, but it is what it is, but that's the where it stands. Now, I'm going to go on a limb and I'm going to say, I believe Omicron is the beginning of the end of the pandemic. Um, it's less, a less virulent strain that's more contagious. And between populations that are naturally infected, people who are vaccinated but getting infected, and boosted people, I believe we're going to reach herd immunity, particularly in heavily immunized states. I'm not sure that's going to be true in un under immunized states. 
So I think this represents the beginning of the end of the pandemic. And I wanna leave you with that hopeful thought. I really do think this, is, this organism is changing and adapting to humans and becoming more like a regular respiratory virus. And I would anticipate moving forward next year, we'll be getting annual boosters that measure the variants circulating in the world, just like we do for flu. And we'll move on to learn to live with this. And I think that's where we're heading at the post-Omicron world. So thank you. I know there are lots of questions today and um, I'll let you get going. Thank you, uh, John. Uh, great, great amount of information. Very, very useful, very helpful. And we do have a lot of questions. So we'll go right through them. Uh, the first one from Jack, I believe this is Jack, Le Jack, Le uh, Jack Lavalette. Uh, the AP issued an update on the return to sports in December. And they just want us to update our algorithm and the Connecticut Children's. Any comments on the sports issue, John? Uh, the CDC just came out with new recommendations today, and they basically say um, make uh, observation of sports virtual again. But uh, from my perspective, I think being if it's outdoors, um, fine. I think indoor sports in the winter, I worry a little bit about with Omicron right now and, uh, and masking if possible would be useful. But uh, I think there's just, I haven't read them yet. I know they just came, literally came out last night from the CDC on new sports recommendations. So let's circle back to that next session. Yeah, thank you, Jack. We'll, we'll, we'll update our recommendations. This is a changing day by day almost. For Mary Simon, how accurate is the positivity rate when most people who are positive do rapid tests? I think you answered that in your presentation, but you wanna comment on that? Yeah, I, you know, it's a great question. We know the rapid antigen tests have about 70 to 75% sensitivity. So in other words, they're gonna miss some true positives. But 75% is not bad. And we also know that they tend to be positive in people who are early in their infection and symptomatic. The, the antigen tests are probably pretty good. It's when you're, you don't have a high viral titer that they're not so good. So the answer is, it's what we've got and PCR testing is very clogged up. So if you see a positive from an antigen test, I usually accept it as a true positive, makes sense. It's where it's negative, you know, it, it, oh, everybody, everybody had Omicron and I, everybody had COVID and I did my rapid test, it's negative and I had a sniffle. I would assume they're positive at that point. And that's where I think it went. And a rapid test is negative in that situation, I get a little worried. PCR is 90% plus molecular NAT tests tend to be 90% plus, not all of them, but most. So it is where we are with it. So we will look at a positive antigen test and accept it as a true positive in general. When they're negative and it's confusing, I get worried and we tend to be a little more careful then. Great. And, and one of the comments I think is important to know that the, uh, you know, these tests really um, were set up for kids over the age of two or, or individuals over the age of two. So you got to be careful with the, with the younger population. Um, from Jeff Himes, could you talk about the fourth shot? Is it something we should be going into? So, you know, in my opinion, I know the Israelis are giving four shots now and, um, you know, they have a great system. They're really able to consolidate and follow everything. And so it, it's, it's easier for them to generate quick data. We're not in that situation. And I'll also say, I'm not sure it's the right thing to do. If you look at the third dose data I showed you, it's pretty good for Omicron. Now that's going to fade, but we also don't know what T cell and other immunity is residual after the, after the booster dose. And the data we're showing with hospitalizations and deaths, particularly in the Northeast, suggest that um, boosted people are at very low risk for hospitalizations and deaths. Now, remember I showed you out of the 1600 hospitalized people in Connecticut, 67% are under immunized or not immunized. So, you know, it's pretty, that's almost seven, almost two thirds, two, it is two thirds. So I think right now I'm not 
running to give a fourth dose. I mentioned though, I do think what's gonna happen is that in about six months from now, there will be a new booster that will include some of these variants that will be suggested to get annual boosting. And I think that is where we need to move in my opinion, but just my opinion, Jeff. Great, uh, from Skip Kodak, one of our board members, uh, two questions. One is a comment that said, what profession is Mr. Carson credential? He's a neurosurgeon. He's uh, a neurosurgeon. And, and I have to tell you, I wouldn't tell Ben Carson how to operate on a brain, but he seems to be more than happy to tell us about public health. So. Well, uh, it, for also from Skip, does a lower average population age in RSA lead to a lower admitted patient age due to, uh, that we're seeing in wave four? You know, I don't know the data in Connecticut yet. I've seen the hospitalization number 16, 1700. I don't know the breakdown by age. It's a great question. I, I don't know if DPH has those data yet. I think it's very important data. And I'd like a little more breakdown on the immunizations, you know, unimmunized versus two doses and how many boosted people are breaking through. It's a small number, but there are some, particularly in the 80 and above group. I'd love to see the breakdown of those data. I, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, Mary has Mary Simon has a couple of comments and questions. One is, uh, is it, it what's the sensitivity of a nasopharyngeal swab versus an oropharyngeal swab? She's heard that it's superior uh, doing a, a, a an oropharyngeal swab is superior for Omicron. Is that true? I don't know the answer to that. I've not seen any data saying that. I will say the ones I like to stay away from are nasal only. So I think oropharyngeal or nasopharyngeal seem to give reasonably good results. You're going to recover virus. Nasal alone, I've seen some data suggesting it wasn't as good. I know Yale is doing that and they seem to have fine tuned that to work. But um, so I, to me, either one seems reasonable. I haven't seen any data comparing them directly with Omicron though. And a comment by her by the, of the Sotro, I think she says Otro means another in Spanish. So I don't know if that's how they came up with the name, but thank you, Mary, for that. Thank you. I, I was wondering, and if there's an explanation, I, I'm gonna sleep better at night. Otherwise there's some crazy <laughs> panel of monoclonal people who say, well, let's come up with the hardest name that anybody can pronounce. And that's the one we're gonna use. <laughs> very, very good. Um, if, if, if innate immunity is the hypothesis for why younger people uh, don't get as sick, and I gotta finish this, this, why are we generally seeing children less than three months also not getting as sick? I don't know. It's a, it's a, fan, it's a fascinating observation of this virus. It's unique if you think about it, particularly those of you who take care of neonates out in the audience today, neonatal viral infections can be very severe, particularly if you're coming out of the birth canal and you happen to acquire them. And, and why this virus appears to be different, we do not understand. It's a great question. I, if I had the answer, I would tell you, I don't know. Great. Um, saying you can get sick whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated is like saying that both Serena Williams and I play tennis. <laughs> that's from, I don't know who, uh, from Jocelyn, that's where it came from. Uh, can influenza infection interfere with the impact of COVID vaccination? Um, I don't think so. I mean, there are data suggesting that co-immunization with the two antigens is fine. So if you happen to have, you know, but we don't like to immunize people who are actively sick. So I'm not, I'm not sure if somebody was febrile with the URI, we probably wouldn't give them the COVID vaccine nor give them the influenza vaccine. You wait for them to be afebrile. So, you know, I don't know any data about interference, but you'd like people not to be clinically ill when they're immunized. I think the getting sick part, I want to go back to the tennis uh, metaphor. I mean, I think <laughs> I'd like to say hospitalized or dead. Okay. So I really, I think we need to move to that point because the vaccine's working. It's keeping us out of the hospital and the ICU and keeping us from dying. So it's pretty good in my book, but is it keeping you from getting a mild cold or the flu or a cough? Probably not. So 
let's talk about hospitalization and death and, and, uh, and then having a mild cold. So I, I, you know, I pushed back a little bit on the metaphor, but thank you. A good point by, by Dr. Arthur Bloomer. He says, I question the importance of positivity rate as it's really dependent on what criteria is for testing. Everyone only symptomatic. So, I mean, I think it's a fair statement. I agree. You know, I, I mentioned, I, I think the case numbers now, I mean, it's a million a day in America, probably not 500. It's 585,000 yesterday. It's probably a million because you don't know. And does it mean anything anymore? I agree with you. I, I would really be tracking hospitalizations, who's getting hospitalized, like your previous question, which was really important, is a younger group, breaking that down and understanding target populations we could intervene with and get keeping them out. Unfortunately, we know the biggest target population are people who chose not to get immunized. So they are filling up the hospital beds all over the country. So it's very sad. And you saw the news, there are media outlets out there telling people still to basically put yourself at risk of dying. I, I, it's unfathomable. But the largest number of beds are being consumed by unimmunized people. Um, another, just confirming that John, that, that people can use your slides with a credit in public panels. Uh, yes or no, you can respond. I think to that's that. up to up to CCMC. If CCMC says fine, I'm fine. So yes, of course. Okay, we'll we'll send the we'll send the uh, Dr. Ron Paul after you after that. Uh, <laughs> Vicky, I, I didn't say I didn't say anything negative. This is what he's saying. But I mean, come on. <laughs> from, uh, from from Dr. Grossi, uh, do we have any data about the rate of MISI following Omicron infection or too, yeah. too soon to tell? I think this is a critical question. As usual, this group asks the most important questions. So we don't know yet. And I haven't seen any data from South Africa on this yet. Um, it's a worry because as you saw, you know, we have thousands and thousands of young people across the country now getting infected. And it's more than we've ever seen, but it's a lower, here's the lower variance virus. Does that mean we're not going to see Missy, or does this mean a month from now, or two months from now, we're going to see lots of Missy? I do not know the answer to that. It's a critical question because it's about the health of children. I will say once again, it reinforces the idea of let's immunize our children when the vaccines that are available for children, let's get them immunized so they don't get COVID or don't get severe COVID and won't be susceptible to get Missy. So to me, that's the biggest intervention we can tell parents. We don't know what's going to happen to Missy, but if you're immunized and boosted, probably unlikely to get it. So not, I don't know for sure, but probably unlikely to get it. So these are critical questions we're going to need to sort out the next few months. And I don't know the, where this is going to go. Great question. Yeah, and we, we have an ongoing study right now, so yeah. we will be able to tell you this for sure uh, directly. And, you know, I wonder if some of this will end up like Kawasaki as opposed to Missy. It's going to be very, very interesting. Uh, from uh, Bruce Cohen, with the new CDC recommendations of negative tests to return, what about people who continue to test positive for weeks? So they're still contagious. Do we keep testing them and isolate them until they're negative? No, I you know, the answer would be if they're asymptomatic and normal immune hosts, uh, you bring them back to work and uh, they're going to wear a mask anyway. And we're going to assume they're non-infectious as we did in the old days after a certain time period. People, immunized people are clearing this faster. So that's been seen. So by day seven, most of these people have, are not positive anymore. So I think we're probably in a little bit of a new era with this, that the answer is no, if they're normal hosts and they're asymptomatic and it's a week out and they happen to have a positive test still, I think you'd bring them back to work with a mask and, and move on. Uh, from Dr. Aksadi, children with various underlying diseases appear to get very sick from Omicron. Any data that two doses of vaccination helps them? And, uh, and then Jula has a, a comment for us in terms of uh, reopening vaccination for children because it's hard to get the vaccine. But uh, on, the, on the first topic, uh, 
that, you know, he makes a statement that underlying conditions, they do get sick from Omicron. Any data that you have on that, John? I don't have data on Omicron specifically, but remember I showed you that we've previously seen data in children that Pfizer presented where the efficacy of the vaccine against other variants was terrific. Um, it was very, very strong and children mounted a really strong immune response. You've seen that if you have a pretty good immune response, you will be covered for Omicron. So I think the indirect data would suggest that two doses are gonna be protective for ICU and hospitalization and death in children. And then when they're ready for a booster, now the CDC has allowed it a younger age group, it's gonna be very important to get them boosted because their titers decline as we tend to do for all respiratory pathogens, it declines, so they need to get boosted as well. So indirect data would suggest, I've not seen specific data for Omicron in children yet. Great question here from, uh, from Jane. Uh, parents are asking me when kids, uh, when kids who got Omicron this winter should get the second dose of the vaccine. Is it true that a vaccine given too soon after a natural infection might be associated with more side effects? You know, we, we tend to wait a couple of weeks. So we'd like the children to be asymptomatic, no fever, feeling better. And then if, if that's two weeks or four weeks out, I think that's fine. I wouldn't give it when someone still has symptoms. I think I would not. And remember they have about 90 days where their titers will, you saw the data, where their titers are gonna be pretty good. So you have that window to give them the next shot. But we do it two to four weeks after usually uh, when they're asymptomatic and feeling better. John, do you think we'll have an, a flu spike anytime soon? Well, we have, we have influenza already, and we are seeing a bit of a spike. I don't know today's numbers. I know last week we had flu A positives. And so, you know, we're going to see both, and it's a worry. Um, you know, it's confusing. So we have X number of kids with COVID. It's like a regular respiratory virus season, right? We have flu, we have RSV bouncing around. So we are seeing flu A, and it is a worry. And, we, and, and there will be co-infections, like we see every season. We have kids coming with multiple respiratory viruses. We're, we're going to see that also. What that means in terms of pathogenicity and outcome, I don't know. Um, from Rebecca Moles, can, can you reiterate and reinforce thoughts on boosters for 12 to 15 year olds? I think it's important. Uh, again, you have to extrapolate from the adult data and the data I showed you where natural infection and two doses show a really steep decline for Omicron. And then boosting really pushes that up. So those are the data we have to go on. Uh, it's true in children as well. Their titers really jump up and I'm going to assume that it's going to keep them from getting severely ill, hospitalized and, and God forbid it, uh, dying. And so I think um, the answer is yes. Uh, it's recommended now. The EUA has expanded to include that age group and I would do it now. Um, there's a minuscule risk from the mRNA vaccines with myocarditis. We've gone through this before. Um, uh, the data show those children recover in a fairly short time, and the data show that natural infection has a many more times likelihood of myocarditis than the vaccines. So once again, it's a risk-benefit. You're much more likely to get heart issues with the natural infection, so I'd rather vaccinate, and, and that's what we're recommending. So the answer is I think boosters are going to work, and I recommend it. A couple of questions, comments to clarification, John. Uh, can, can, can you please comment on the timing of the first COVID or the booster dose after infection, confirmed infection? So if you've gotten um, your two doses and you get infected, I think that's what the question's asking. I think it's a, both. You know, if it's a two doses, you get infected. When do you get your booster? If you've only had one dose, you get infected. When do you get the second dose? Yeah. So one dose, um, you got infected. We wait, be asymptomatic, get better. Before 90 days, get that second dose in. 
and uh, that's important. If you had both doses, but you're not boosted, you get COVID. To me, it's really the same situation. So you're going to wait, asymptomatic, be better, and then boost. And within 90 days, you're, you're not going to have that boost anymore from the natural infection. You'd like to have the vaccine on board. So again, asymptomatic, I usually wait at least two weeks. And then it has to be before 90 days because that then you're no longer protected from the natural infection probably. So that makes sense? Yeah, it does. And 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 from Les Welcome, a good comment here. We, we all hope your last comment holds true, that this is the beginning of the end for the COVID pandemic, but isn't it possible that new mutations may come along soon? And so this becomes a sort of a seasonal seasonal virus. Well, I, I think this will become, I, first of all, this virus is not going away, okay? It's here to stay. We are going to need to learn to live with it safely. And that's what I do. So live with, how do you live with it safely? So you get immunized, you get boosted, so you're Titers are up, so you know you're not going to be in the hospital. When you're indoors right now, since so many people are sick with COVID, you wear protection. Um, common sense, right? Get a shot, wear a mask. I'm not, we're not asking you to go to war. We don't have to parachute out of an airplane. You don't have to do any of that. Just get a shot, wear a mask. And I do think we're going to reach herd immunity. And we are. If you look at Connecticut right now with the 20% positivity rate, you know there's thousands of people are going to be temporarily boosted. We have thousands of people heavily immunized and boosted. And we're going to reach a point where at least for a few months, this is going to really fizzle out because a lot of people are going to have antibody titers, neutralizing antibody titers, and high enough that most variants will be covered. And even a new variant coming out. Once your neutralizing antibodies are high enough, they're covering various spike protein mutations. Okay. So then the question is going to be, what do we do next? And that's sort of, you know, later in the year or next year. And that's where I think we're going to come into the annual boosters that pull in other variants. So I'm optimistic, I really am, because I think we are moving because of a less virulent, incredibly contagious virus that everyone's getting, um, we're gonna move to a herd immunity state and I think it's gonna be better and I think it's gonna give us breathing room to, to approach this as another serious respiratory pathogen. I'm very optimistic about this. I do think there are a lot of unknowns, you know, Missy, you know, all the things. What I do know, and I've shown you the data today, is that immunizations and boosting work and the majority of people hospitalized in Omicron are unimmunized or underimmunized. It's two thirds in Connecticut. It's going to be higher in some of the underimmunized states. They're just those hospitals are going to be overwhelmed in Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama. I mean, it's sad to watch. And um, I think we're going to reach herd immunity in the Northeast rather quickly. Uh, and Omicron, if it lives up to what it did in South Africa, it'll burn through in about six weeks. So I am very optimistic, but it means we have hard work ahead of us in the next six weeks to be consistent. Uh, I'm exhausted with it. I know all of you are, but you know, when I go into the big Y, I put an N95 on now. Um, I'm, I'm going to be uh, at work next week, seeing patients. And we've now gone to a policy of N95s for all patient contact because we know it works. And, and so we have to be smart. We have to be nimble and pivot as we need to. And this is going to burn through over the next six weeks. And in my opinion, leave us in a much better high herd immunity state. I have a lot of questions, but there's one last one, and then we have to move on. It's the, can you discuss the use of the Pfizer's uh, antiviral treatment? When, when would you use it, John? That's yeah, a great question. So uh, the Merck one was only 30% efficacy. And I think as our group has been chit-chatting about this, we're probably not going to use it. But the Pfizer had 80 to 90% efficacy in preventing hospitalization and deaths from, um, and it, it was very similar to the monoclonals. So I think what we're probably going to do, the trouble is it's pills, it's two protease inhibitors, um, it's, I, I believe now it's 12 and above. I just saw the EUA this morning. 
Yep. So there will be a niche for similar to what we're using the monoclonal Sotro for, where someone who's, who's mildly ill, COVID positive, very high risk, and we don't have any monoclonal, this would be an ideal to give them at home or to get them prescribed on this and take this and, and hopefully would reduce hospitalization and death. Now, I know we just got our first few doses in. Again, it's, it's in short supply. So we got a, a few doses in and we'll probably use them, uh, as I said, in the same category as the monoclonal kids. When we run out of monoclonal, we'll switch them over and start using the Pfizer uh, now uh, for 12 and above. It's a great question. I'm hoping we get a higher supply and we can get this out there because I think it will mitigate things. Yeah, but do call us if you have such a patient. I mean, there's certainly many of them out there and, uh, and but don't wait, you know, do it, do it quickly as when you can. And we can't treat everyone, we'll try. Um, I, th I think uh, from Ken Spiegelman, and then we'll go to the to the next, uh, and then we'll have to uh, close up. Ken says, for children, is there any evidence that spacing out the second dose greater than three weeks may be beneficial, as some have reported? Yeah, there, there was some original papers that showed um, a better response when it was spaced out. And um, the challenge, Ken, is that the original FDA EUAs are based on 28 and 21 days from Derda and, and Pfizer, now 21 days also for Novavax, which I showed you. It's sort of where it is. And, and the licensure is based on that because that's all the safety data were on those two doses and that time frame and everything else. So you'd have to probably go back and do a clinical trial and space it out more and look at efficacy. But I, I don't disagree with you. I think broader spacing might have given a, you know, a, a, um, a better antibody response. And there were some early data suggesting that, but it's not what we're gonna be doing right now. Okay, well, thank you, John, for, uh, for the really uh, marathon session of all kinds of information. I'm sure there'll be additional Greek letters that we'll have to deal with, unfortunately, uh, but, uh, but we'll get to learn from you as we always have. So thank you again. Thank you for, the, for our CME team uh, that has really put this together, Steve and Liz and, and Nicole, Marianne and Anna Marie that turned this into a uh, snowy day, into a learning day for everyone. So please uh, stay safe. We'll see you on Tuesday for Grand Rounds, and then we'll give you the, the next date, I think, for um, I think January 21st, perhaps, is the next one, John. I, I believe that's the date, and we'll have more information for you. Uh, be safe, be well. Thank you. Bye-bye.